Amen. Amen. As you sit down, would you take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 8? Josh has read the text for us and introduced us to the passage that we have before us this morning as ordained by God as we work through this gospel of Mark together. As you turn there, it occurred to me as we were singing that that I would want to introduce the sermon like this. When a man comes and stands in a pulpit, a congregation is going to get one of two things. He's either going to get a speech that a man has orchestrated well and crafted finally over the days of the week preceding the Sunday morning, or the congregation is going to get a gift from God in a sermon that has been granted by God to the man that is to stand in the pulpit. And I want you to know this morning on the front end of this sermon that you're going to get a gift from God, not a speech. In Mark chapter 8, we are brought to yet another miracle of Jesus. It's seemingly a repeated miracle in type in that Jesus feeds thousands of people with a limited supply of bread and fish. If you lift out for a moment and you look across the horizon of Mark chapters 6, 7, and 8, you will see a common theme come off the Bible in the pages of the Bible at you. And that common theme is real simple. It is the theme of bread. We had a really fine bread sermon, bread of life sermon on December 27th. And God would have us to revisit bread again this morning with this passage in Mark chapter 8. Let me, let me set the table for you and show you this theme in these three chapters. In Mark chapter 6 verse 30, we see that Jesus feeds a large crowd, 5,000 men specifically, with miraculous bread that seems to come from such a limited Paltry supply. In Mark chapter 7, verse 2, we see that the Pharisees are bothered that the disciples are eating bread with unwashed hands. In Mark 7, 28, we have the Syrophoenician woman whose little girl is possessed by a demon and she asks for crumbs of bread to fall off the table that she might feed on those crumbs of bread. And we looked at that passage weeks ago. Now in Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 9, Jesus feeds a second large crowd with miraculous bread. And if you look forward to Mark chapter 8, verse 16, there's a bread controversy there between Jesus and his disciples. So bread in these three chapters is a very prevalent theme. What's the big deal about bread? What's all this bread talk about? Well, we need to understand clearly this morning. And as a result, we need to worship genuinely. And it is a gift that I offer to you this morning from the Lord. God understands humanity. God understands you and me. And so God, in his scriptures, talks to us in terms that we can easily comprehend and apply to our lives. 
And I am so thankful that God is not complicated in his communication with us. One of the most common ways that we find in Scripture that God speaks to his people is through the use of metaphors and analogies. He does this often and we are able to wrap our minds and our hearts around what he says to us because he speaks in such common everyday language. One of the most vivid analogies or metaphors that God uses throughout the scriptures is that of bread. There's an unbreakable tie between Jesus and even what happened with Israel back in the Exodus. And I want to take you there and I want to show you that because the first point, and I have a good, clean three-point sermon this morning because that's what the text offers. The first point is this, Jesus Christ is the bread of life. And we're going to build off of that, but we need to get solid in our hearts what it means for Jesus Christ to be the bread of life. And so let's go to Exodus chapter 16. Let's do some Bible drill this morning. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 16, right there at the beginning of that chapter. We'll pick up in verse 2 when you get there. And I want to show you this morning, in this first point, that Jesus is inseparable from what happened with this miracle that God performs to, with Israel in the wilderness during the Exodus. So in Exodus 16, chapter 2, we read, they've left Israel, they've gone Egypt, they've gone through the Red Sea, they're out in the wilderness, and here's what we read. The whole congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. Verse 2, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full? For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So bread is a major issue in the history and in the life of Israel. And it starts right there. Exodus chapter 16. Well, Jesus very personally and very intentionally attaches his life and his work to this very instance in the history of Israel way back in the Exodus. I want you to now turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6 picks up right after Jesus has fed the 5,000 men that we studied some weeks ago. John chapter 6 begins with that account. And Jesus, as he unpacks what that feeding really meant, ties himself to the bread of the Exodus. 
So look in chapter 6, starting in verse 1. You'll see there, that's where Jesus feeds the 5,000. Now I want you to lift over to John six forty-seven, Because Jesus is now making application and he's teaching what this feeding was and what it was to point to ultimately. And Jesus says in chapter 6, verse 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes underline that word, has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers, here's where he goes to the Exodus now with Moses. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread of life, the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Jesus personally and Jesus intentionally connects his life and his work to what God did in the wilderness with Israel, raining down manna and a daily portion of manna for the people of God. And he says, whoever believes has eternal life. And anyone who eats of this bread will live forever. So we must embrace the importance. We must embrace the importance of Jesus Christ for life. He is so critical to humanity that he says he is bread And it is by bread physically that man survives and lives another day. And Jesus says he is the bread of life. You cannot live without me. Is that your attitude about Jesus Christ? I can't live without him. Without Jesus Christ, spiritually speaking, we would Starve to death. Starve. And I will tell you this morning that the world is full of starving people. They hunger, but they do not know what they hunger for. And they feed on the wrong things. And we've got a message to go take to them. Jesus Christ is so critical to you and me that he is like food. We can't live without food. And we cannot live without Jesus Christ. How important is this theme of bread in the life of Jesus? Let me just show you some elements of the life of Jesus Christ that further accentuate this truth. How about this? He was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is the Hebrew word for house of bread. He's born in the house of bread. The bread that came down from heaven went into the house of bread. Bread is important in the Christian life. How important is bread? The first time Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. Remember, he's fasted for 40 days. And the very first temptation that Satan brings to him is some stones. And he says, hey, Jesus, you're hungry. Turn those stones into bread and feed yourself. And oh, Jesus says something that we must hear this morning. He says, it is written, 
Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. Brackets. That's what man should live by. Boy, we could spend a whole sermon on just that verse. Every word that comes from the mouth of God, Jesus Christ is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. We need Jesus Christ who came from God to live by. We don't need mere bread. We need the bread of life. The final evening of Jesus' life. Skip all the way to the end. When he has the last supper on that Thursday evening with his apostles, Paul records that on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus's body is bread. And we need to remember that it was broken for us. And in remembering, we eat it. We take Him in. And in remembering and eating, we are believing. And it is through that broken body of bread that we're forgiven and saved and given eternal life. This is a gift to us this morning from our God. So his life began and ended with bread, Bethlehem, broken body, and everything in between. Jesus Christ is the bread of life. So the question for all of us this morning is, do we really see our need for Jesus Christ? In such a profound and critical sense. And I'm going to say to you this morning. That in this moment we would say yeah. But next Tuesday. When life starts swirling. Conflict starts raging up. Things start breaking. Health starts deteriorating. We can forget That we need our daily dose of bread, Jesus Christ. What do you depend on? Ask yourself this question this morning. What do you depend on as if it were the bread of life? It's a very important question. What is it that you turn to and treat it as if it were bread that you cannot live without? Is it money? Jesus? I hope so, sweetheart. I hope so. But let's be honest. Is it money? If I could just get a little bit more, I'll live another day. Is it possessions? If I could just accumulate and get the stuff I need. Is it reputation? If people would just think of me well, I would feel good. I'm going to work on my reputation Is it relationships? I'm not complete without someone else. If I could just get someone else. 
Is it a crowd or is it seclusion? If I could just get alone and have private free time, I just don't want people. If I could just get quiet. These are substitutes for the bread of life. And we must all say, Jesus is my bread. I must get more Jesus above anything else. There are a host of temptations in our lives to turn towards bread substitutes. Mm. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And I'm going to tell you that every substitute that we would put in the place of Jesus Christ is so fleeting and temporary and really and truly so pathetic. They're, they're so temporary. Yeah, they're going to burn up when the new heavens and the new earth are established by God. Yeah, that's temporary in that sense. But I'm going to tell you, many of the things that we turn to for bread and substance in our lives are so fleeting that they're going to burn up right before our very eyes in our own lifetime. The things that we turn to do not last. And we even get conditioned to the things of this earth and they no longer satisfy. But when we draw in the bread of life, our desire for more grows and we can be gluttons on Jesus Christ without sinning. There are a host of temptations also in our lives to, to look at Jesus Christ in a lesser light than bread. We, we need to see him as sustaining, nourishing bread, food. We need to take him inside. But we are tempted in all kinds of ways in Christianity. And you can go to Christian bookstores and see it. To, to look at Jesus in such a lesser light. We are prone as people to look towards Jesus and, and look at to Him as a therapist. Jesus is not a therapist. He is God who made us. We are so prone to look at Jesus as, as, um, as a butler, as a servant who is supposed to serve us more of what we want. He is not the butler. He is our master. We're even prone, and hear me all the way through on this one, we're prone to look at Jesus as our friend, our pal. He is our friend. Scripture even says that He's our friend. But we need to say, yes, friend, but He is Lord. Lord. And as Lord, He is also friend. But He is not just merely our friend. He's not our pal. He's not our co-pilot. Seen the bumper stickers? No. He is the pilot. In Him is life. And apart from Him, there is death. He's not a therapist or a guru or a friend that we can live without or with. He's all. And so we are called to feast on Him. Feast on Jesus Christ. Take Him in. 
He's a banquet waiting to be had every single waking moment of our lives. So, my first point this morning is, we see clearly from the whole council of Scripture, but in these three chapters of Mark, that Jesus Christ wants to establish in our minds and hearts that He is the bread of life, and it's only through eating or believing in Him that we can have eternal life. And every one of us wants that. Everyone in this room wants that. Even if you don't yet believe in Jesus Christ, you are pursuing eternal life. You may just not know it. And I pray that we introduce that to you this morning. Second point. From this passage, we are going to see that, yes, Jesus Christ is the bread of life. But Jesus Christ is the bread of life for all who will believe in him. The feeding of the 4,000 in this passage shares a lot in common with the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark chapter 6. A lot. There are a lot of parallels. So much so that there are some scholars throughout church history that have claimed that this recording of this feeding of 4,000 was an erroneous duplication of the 5,000. They just got some of their statistics wrong. And it's really one and the same, and we really don't need to spend a lot of time in this passage. And I'm going to tell you that if you take that stance, there's no way you can also hold faithfully to the inspiration of Scripture, the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture, and you're going to say that this is merely a collection of men's writings instead of something that was written under the inspiration and supervision of God. And I am an inerrantist. And I'm a believer in the inspiration of Scripture and that all of it is profitable and perfect and useful. And so this is recorded not as a duplication, but as a unique standalone miracle that merits our attention. So there are many similarities, but there are some really, really significant differences that will jump out at you from the pages of Scripture if you just slow down with me and pay a little bit of attention to what's being recorded. Now, this morning, I am not going to unpack this passage verse by verse as we're accustomed to. The feeding of the 4,000 with a few loaves and a few fish, it is duplicated in the, the miraculous feat that Jesus accomplishes. And I unpacked how I believe Jesus did that when we preached on the 5,000 miracle a few weeks ago. It's online on our podcast. Go listen to it. I really like what the Lord showed us there. So this morning, I'm not going to go and talk about how seven loaves fed 4,000 people because it's the same way that five loaves fed 5,000 people. That is the same. But here's what I want to do. I want to lift out of here some differences, and we're going to get to a point of application that I hope rocks your soul. So stay with me. Here are seven differences between the 5,000 miracle and the 4,000 miracle that we're in this morning. Ready? And I'm going to work through these pretty quick. Number one, in the, in the feeding of the 5,000, they are designated there as 5,000 men. The scripture is very specific, 5,000 men. And if you remember when I preached that passage, I said that there would also be many women and children accompanying this and that the miracle is probably grander than we give it credit for in the scriptures. 
Because they're probably, above and beyond men, there could have been 25,000 people there that day that Jesus fed with five loaves. In this passage, the 4,000, the text reads very specifically, 4,000 people. So this is a smaller crowd, number one. And so we know this is not a duplicated recording because the size of the crowd is monumentally different. Number two. The people in the first miracle of 5,000, the people were, were with Jesus for only one day. In fact, one afternoon. And it was growing late. In this miracle of the 4,000, the people have been with him, the text says very clearly, for three days. They've been with them three days. If you see that in verse 2. Number three, in the 5,000 miracle, the disciples expressed their skepticism of feeding so many people so late in the day in such a desolate place with so no little supply. Whereas in this miracle of the 4,000, the disciples acknowledge their powerlessness. So they're not skeptical that it can be done, but they say this can't be done. How can one do this? Number four, Jesus directed the people to sit down in ordered groups on green grass. That green grass is a sign of the season of the year. In the Middle East, the grass is not green in the summer or the winter. It's green in the spring. So we have a denotion here of the season of the year. Whereas in, in Mark chapter 8, the feeding of the 4,000, Jesus sat the people in random, not organized, random groups where there was no green grass. So we have a different season of the year. Number five, Jesus offered one prayer when he fed the 5,000. In this passage, Mark records that he prayed twice, once before distributing the bread and once before distributing the fish. So we got some differences going here. And it's not from a different perspective. Mark wrote both of these passages. Number six, Jesus in the 5,000 miracle used five loaves and two fish. In this present miracle of 4,000, he used seven loaves and a few small fish. And number seven, in the feeding of the 5,000, there were leftovers in both of these miracles. In the 5,000 miracle, there were 12 small baskets left over. And in the feeding of the 4,000, there were seven large baskets. There is a different term used in the original Greek for basket in both of those miracles. And the term in the 5,000 miracle is for a small wicker basket, much like what we collect our offering in. But the term for basket in this 4,000 miracle is, denotes a large basket that can hold even a man. And it's the same word for basket that's used when Paul is lowered down through the wall in Damascus when they're trying to kill him. After he became a believer and follower of Jesus Christ. So we have 12 small baskets. And we have 7 large baskets. These are different miracles. Different miracles. And if there's still any doubt as to whether or not these are different. Let me just solve it for you very clearly. With the words of Jesus. Look over in Mark 8 chapter, chapter 8 verse 9. I'm sorry not 9. 19. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. 
And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. So Jesus Christ himself here says, I've done two miracles with two different starting quantities with two different amounts of leftovers. He even uses the two different terms for basket in each of those summaries of those miracles. So these are two different things. Okay, neat, Pastor Edward. Why are you making such a big deal about them being different? We get it. I want to rock your soul with an eighth reason that we can see that these are different miracles. I want you to listen to this very closely. Because this is a gift from God. I'm not making a speech. I am presenting to you a gift from God. That's very personal for you and for me. There is an eighth difference in these two miracles that cannot be overlooked. In the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus feeds Jewish people who have chased Jesus down in Bethsaida. In the feeding of the 4,000 in this text, Jesus feeds Gentiles who did not chase him down but whom he pursued and went to on his own volition. So we have two different peoples who are the benefactors of Jesus taking small supplies of bread and fish and feeding thousands upon thousands of people. And they are called Jews and Gentiles. We know these are Gentiles because in Chapter 8, verse 1, it starts with these words, in those days. What days are those? Well, in Mark seven thirty one, right above that, he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. This is Gentile territory, and it's in those days that he feeds 4,000 people that had been with him for three days. And he did it because he had compassion, the text says. Jesus says, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. Jesus Christ had compassion for people outside of Israel. He had a heart. He casts his glance towards people that are not of God's chosen Israel. That has huge implications for you and for me this morning because we are not ethnic Israel. We are outside of God's chosen people that he chose genetically in Abraham. We're outside of that, genetically speaking. We're these people that Jesus feeds in this text this morning. We're Gentiles, you and me. And he came to us as well. Jesus is not just bread for the Jews. Jesus is bread for the Gentiles also. And I want you to listen. Let's do a little bit more Bible drill. Let's go to uh, Romans. Romans chapter 1. I want to show you some beautiful scripture. 
that ought to send your soul soaring in worship this morning for Jesus Christ. Here we go. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul speaks to this very issue that I'm proclaiming to you this morning. Paul writes, Romans 1, 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Circle those words. For everyone who believes, comma, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You and I are Greeks. We're Gentiles. We're not Jews. So Paul is inspired by God to tell us that Jesus Christ is salvation for everyone who would believe, Jew first and Gentile second. Jesus came to Israel to save Israel so that through Israel the world might be called to God. That's the truth. Keep going in Romans to chapter 11. And I just love this passage of Scripture. I love this section. Chapter 11 is just a beautiful chapter of Scripture. But I want to pick up with you in verse 17. And I want you to read this autobiographically, if you're a Christian, a follower, a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, if you eat the bread of life through belief in Him, I want you to read with me this passage autobiographically. This is how you became a citizen in the kingdom of God. Romans eleven seventeen. But if some of the branches were broken off, those branches are Jews, Jewish people. If some of the branches were broken off, and you, Gentile, you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. So we've been grafted in. We're a wild olive tree that has been broken and grafted in to this one tree. And there are some branches in that one tree that were broken off. We go on. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Don't have time to unpack all that, but the root is Jesus Christ. He's also known as the root of Jesse. And he is the root to this tree and he provides nourishment to the branches that are either naturally there or the ones that are grafted in. Verse 19. Then you will say, branches were broken off. So that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. They didn't eat the bread of life. Okay, They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud. But fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches. Neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, but I would insert here, but beget, believe in this bread of life and eat, they will be grafted in, for God has power to graft them in again through belief. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, 
and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? That is beautiful language. I want to read the most beautiful one more time. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Beautiful, beautiful language. That is a gift from God this morning to us. You and I are wild olive trees. And if we believe in Jesus Christ, and to to mix all the analogies now, if we believe that Jesus is the bread of life and we eat of Him by believing in Him, then we get grafted from our wild olive tree state, we get grafted into a cultivated olive tree. Pure virgin olive oil would come from us. The good stuff. That is a gift from God to us. And I plead with you this morning to receive this gift to the fullest and feast on it for the rest of your life. That is autobiographical. No, that is biographical about you and how you've come into the kingdom of God. You've been grafted into this kingdom and you today are considered in God's eyes to be Israel. To be children of Abraham. Spiritually speaking. To use another analogy, Jesus tells us that he is the good shepherd. And I I just want to share this passage with you. He's the bread of life. There's this olive tree concept and he's the root of that tree. Jesus also tells us that he's the good shepherd. And there's a Jew and Gentile theme in this passage. Just listen to it. John chapter 10, starting in 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now listen to this. And I have other sheep. Other sheep that are not of this fold. The ones that are of this fold are Jewish Israel. But there's other sheep, Jesus says, that are not of this fold. They're called Gentiles. They're called Greeks. And they're out there. And he says, I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. That is beautiful language too. Jesus Christ is the bread of life, point number two, who came to save the world, Jew and Gentile. He will save all who believe in Him. All who ingest Him. Who Chew on Him and taste Him and swallow Him and let Him change them from the inside out. That's point number two. He's the bread of life for all who would believe. 
You know, there's moments when I understand very vividly that I have been grafted into a cultivated olive tree. <laughs> there, there are moments that I'm very, very aware that I am a wild, wild olive tree. I've shared with a couple of men this morning, I had a bad night last night. I lost my anger, my temper. Uh, not at people, it was at technology. And I appreciate the laughter, but I sinned. And, and I, it's, I'm not condemning you for laughing. You're laughing in identification with me, but I sinned with anger last night that technology would not work. And I'm doing that while I've got to preach this this morning. I am a wild olive tree. And I need to be broken off and polished a little bit and grafted in to a cultivated tree so that I can draw nutrition and strength and sustenance from a root whose name is Jesus Christ. And I became acutely aware of that last night and had a real good moment of repentance realizing this root business and this grafting business. And as I said to a few men this morning, I don't want to stand before you as a hypocrite making a speech. I want to offer you a gift from God that has even been a gift to me. This isn't my gift to you. This is God's gift to you through me. And I absolutely believe that this morning. This is good stuff. So do you understand that you're a wild olive tree apart from Jesus Christ? Do you understand that you need to be grafted in? And you need to draw from a root that will give you nothing but nourishment forever and ever and ever? Do you understand that you need to eat through belief this bread of life? We have seen in some analogies that God has used with us this morning. We've seen an analogy of the bread of life, an olive tree, and a shepherd, and some flocks. He's speaking to us in common language, and the message is clear. There is one flock, there is one olive tree. So I'm going to ask you, are you a member of the flock? And are you subject to the one shepherd? And do you draw nutrients from the single root? You get there by feeding on the bread of life. And we feed on the bread of life by believing that his body was broken on a cross. And that he died. And that he was laid to rest in a tomb. And a rock was rolled over it. But on the third day, that rock was away from the hole and that tomb was empty because he rose from the dead and he has defeated sin and death by going through all of that in your place and in my place as a substitute because it's what we deserved. And if you believe in that cross, burial, and resurrection, if you believe in that, you are in that moment eating the bread of life. And in that moment of eating, you are being grafted into a cultivated olive tree. And you're being drawn into the one flock sitting under the lordship of the one shepherd.
That's Christianity. And I proclaim that boldly and as clearly as I possibly can this morning. You must believe in this Christ. Third point. The bread of life is who Jesus is. And I want to say to you this morning that a little bit of Jesus goes a long, long way. A little bit of Jesus goes a long, long way. There is a common truth in this bread of life theme. There is always a seemingly small supply and a very noticeable large demand. Smallness and supply. Jesus is but one man. He took on flesh and blood. He, he wept. He sighed. He had emotions. He, he slept. He was tired. He fell asleep in a boat on the lake. And slept through a storm. How could that one be bread for all? Just in the context of Mark and what we've looked at here in Mark. He took in the 5,000 miracle, five loaves of bread and fed 5,000 men, some 25,000 total people, somewhere in there. Limited supply, five loaves. Unlimited demand, thousands upon thousands. And he did it. In this present miracle this morning in Mark chapter 8, seven loaves, 4,000 people. This is not going to work. The calculators can't figure this thing out. But a little bit of bread, a little bit of Jesus, what seems to be a little bit of Jesus, can go a long, long way. How long? So long that we call it eternity. The, the woman, the Syrophoenician woman who wanted her little girl healed of this demon possession, that woman was starving to death. And she said, Jesus, if I could just have the crumbs... A little bit, crumbs are little. A little of you, Jesus, is all I need. You'll go a long way if I could just have you as crumbs. Remember the woman that just touched Jesus' cloak? Just, she just, if I could just touch that. She didn't have right theology and doctrine yet. She just believed in Jesus enough to say, I'm going to touch his robe. And Jesus said, your faith has healed you. A little bit of faith has healed you. For eternity, it goes a long way. And so notice in this how the miracle unfolds. In both the 5,000 and the 4,000 miracles, Christ didn't speak a big mound of bread into existence and say, okay, guys, get your wheelbarrows and let's run it out to the people. He had, in this case, seven loaves, and he's breaking and handing. And these disciples are running ruts in the grass. On the hillside, making trips to the people seated. And Jesus measured out piece by piece, person by person, enough food for the moment. Even in the leftovers, Jesus was precise. In his calculations and in his immaculate creation of the moment. In the 5,000 miracle, there's 12 small baskets left over. There's 12 apostles that needed to be fed. 
And I believe that there's some symbolic meaning to the 12 tribes of Israel. And symbolically, he's saying, I am the bread of life, and you take a little bit of me, and I will be sufficient for all of these people, yes, and for all of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's complete. I am complete for my people. In the present miracle this morning in Mark 8, we have seven small or large baskets of leftovers. I'm not a big numbersology guy, so let's be careful, but seven is the number of completeness. And God demonstrates, Jesus demonstrates that his creation of food for these 4,000 equates to leftovers of seven baskets, meaning my provision is perfect and complete. He made the earth in seven days and there's seven large baskets left over. There's symbolism that merits our worship in the precision for which Jesus measured out for these people. And isn't it interesting that God rained manna down from heaven in just the right quantities for the day. And each day they were to get more. They weren't to store up until the sixth day for the Sabbath. And here Jesus measured it out just enough bread for the occasion. So the third point is Jesus is the bread of life and a little bit of Jesus goes a long, long way. So you need this bread. I certainly needed this bread this week. And I want you to know, as your pastor and as the man that was preaching today, I feasted in moments. I did not feast 24-7. I sinned last night some. I was not feasting last night when I lost my temper. But more often than not, I feasted on our Christ. And that put me in a position to be even able to stand here this morning and bring this to you. I feasted. And it is my prayer that you would feast on him as well as a result of hearing this message. And I'm going to say this. You and I must always bring our needs to Jesus Christ and nothing that this world offers. We must not turn to jobs and people and things. We must bring our needs to Jesus Christ in faith. And we need to know that as he has done in these two miracles, and as we saw in the miracle in the wilderness of the Exodus, he will give us exactly what we need to fulfill his calling on our lives. In the economy of Jesus Christ, no matter what it may look like, his supply will always exceed our demand. Provided that we are satisfied with his supply. You know, I've thought about this personally. And and I'm going to confess to you that I don't feast enough on Jesus Christ. He has so much more for me to eat. But I'm the one that seems to walk away from the table. But he would have me and he would have you to come to him and feast often and long. Because that is what we will do in eternity. And I believe as a born-again Christian, eternity has already started for us now. We are created by God to hunger 
for God. We're all hungry. But tragically, we all in moments satisfy our hunger somewhere else besides Jesus. And this is a call this morning to all of us as a church family to stop feeding elsewhere and feed only on Christ. He is the bread of life and we must feast on him and him alone for all of eternity. Father, I thank you that I did not come here today with a speech, but a gift. And Father, that's how we seem to operate every Sunday. I thank you that I can't look back in my past and see where I just made a speech, but each time, inadequate that it may have been, I brought a gift to your people that you gave to them. Father, I pray with certainty this morning that this was a gift. And I hope I'm right in speaking on behalf of these, your people here this morning. We say thank you for Jesus Christ, the bread of life, and for a morning where you would call this to our attention. Father, I'm certain there's someone here this morning that has not been grafted into the tree, that's not of the flock, that doesn't eat of the bread of life. I pray, Father, that you would bring them to me, Josh, our other elder members, fellow believers, fellow attendees here this morning. I pray that you'd bring these people to someone that has the gospel ready to share. And that through the preaching of this message, some would come forward and partake of Christ for now and all time. And it's my request for the glory of Jesus Christ and for the good of that person. Thank you, Jesus.